0: we end our journey through Sodom this morning. Uh, We won't quite leave Lot yet. He'll get one more episode. Uh, But this morning, we do finally see the destruction of Sodom. The main point for the morning is God presents a pattern of judgment with the destruction of Sodom. And there is both a near pattern and a far pattern here. First, God may judge nations individually while preserving the rest of the world for final judgment. He'll do this again in Egypt. He does this through various nations throughout world history, but ultimately, Sodom gives us the pattern for the totality of destruction which mirrors God's final judgment over the whole world when it comes under the power of the false messiah. So we begin with the dawn of the next day, still within the 24-hour period uh, that we have seen these angels uh, through most of the summer. The timing of this judgment was when the sun had risen over the earth. God has been very careful through Moses to record uh, when certain things are happening. And we don't have the availability to wedge more days in between this. We see that when God comes to act in judgment, he is very swift in bringing that judgment about. Chapter 18, verse 1 began at midday on day one with these angels coming to visit Abraham. Later in that afternoon, these angels turned toward Sodom, at least two of them, while the third remained behind with Abraham to speak with him. And this is that back and forth dialogue that God had with Abraham about if there are 50 in the city, if there are 45, if there are 40, will you spare it? And Abraham's plea that God live up to his own character and righteousness and not judge the righteous the same way he judges the wicked. Later in that afternoon, God and Abraham part ways And then in the evening, these angels meet Lot at Sodom. And then just before they are about to go to sleep, the Sodomites come seeking these angels that entered into the city. The angels rescue Lot and then warn him of the judgment coming upon Sodom. And so through the night on day one, Lot pleads with his family to come with him. It's on the morning. Of the very same day that destruction comes on Sodom, once the destruction is handed down, it's it is brought about immediately. This is at the break of dawn. We see Lot escaping, and he escapes to the little city of Zoar. Now we remember from the last few weeks that we have spent with Lot, especially in Sodom, uh, that he is not the most mature believer, though he is a believer. And he has not learned to trust God. He has not learned to depend on God, even when he recognizes God's hand in saving him and God's favor towards him in coming to rescue him. We notice these angels separated from Abraham and God before Abraham even pleaded with God to rescue Lot. He had already sent rescuers into the city. We know that God was taking care of his own people. Even though Lot was oppressed by the city around him, and even though much of his activity and character was morphed and distorted to look like the city, we know that he belonged to God, and God's righteousness had been imputed to him. And so, in the midst of disaster, in the midst of destruction, when Lot is told, run for your life because destruction is coming and it's coming fast, he stops and he argues, he complains a bit, and the basis of this argument is fear. He hasn't learned to trust. He hasn't learned to love God and to know that God loves him. In Genesis nineteen nineteen, we see this argument between Lot and his rescuers. It says, now behold, your servant has found favor in your sight, and you have magnified your loving kindness, which you have shown me by saving my life. But I cannot escape to the mountains, for the disaster will overtake me and I will die. He does not trust God's word that safety is in the mountains. Now behold, this town is near enough to flee to, and it is small. Please let me escape there. Is it not small that my life may be saved? Lot pleads to go to Zoar. Zoar was not the place that God had designed for his safety, but God gives him permission to go to this little city. God is working with Lot to build his faith, and Lot is going to find in Zoar that this is not the best solution for him. Eventually, he will flee to the mountains. But God said through these angels, Behold, I grant you this request, not to overthrow the little town or the town of which you have spoken. Hurry, escape there, for I cannot do anything until you arrive there. God has decided that he will not destroy the city until he has brought Lot to safety in that town. And so we have two events that are coinciding in time. One, Lot has to get out of the city, and second, God is bringing judgment as fast as he possibly can on these cities. Therefore, the town, the name of the town was called Zoar. And so... Lot ends up in this little town of Zoar, and as he is arriving, God brings destruction on the whole valley. We'll take a look at how he brought that destruction. In 1924, it says, the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah brimstone and fire from the Lord out of heaven. Now, this brimstone and fire, many take this as a figure of speech that's called a hendeatus, which means having one meaning. These two words come together to mean burning brimstone, or brimstone that is on fire. God is sending down material onto Sodom that is a light with flame. And it's coming from a source in heaven. It is raining down. Now, We see throughout scripture times in which God rains things down on the earth. Sometimes it is good and sometimes it is bad. In Genesis 2.5, it said no shrub of the field was yet on the earth and no plant of the field had yet sprouted for the Lord God had not sent rain upon the earth and there was no man to cultivate the ground. We see that this sending rain upon the earth is eventually going to be a sort of blessing until the flood The ground was watered by a mist, uh, but rain was eventually going to be the means by which God would nourish the ground. But in Genesis 7, 4, we see the same rain becoming the judgment. For after seven more days, I will send rain on the earth 40 days and 40 nights, and I will blot out from the face of the land every living thing that I have made. Now we know how this works. Uh, especially since in Genesis it will explain to us that the great fountains of the deep burst open and the windows of heaven were rolled back and the rain fell for this period of time. But this was a divine act of God. God can use either supernatural processes or he can supernaturally use the physical processes of this world. But either way, the source of the judgment comes from God. In Exodus 9.23, we see the judgment of Egypt. Moses stretches out his staff toward the sky. The Lord sent thunder and hail and fire ran down to the earth. The Lord rained hail on the land of Egypt. So there was hail and fire flashing continually in the midst of the hail, very severe, such as had not been in the land of Egypt since it became a nation. "...and the hail struck all that was in the field through all the land of Egypt, both man and beast. The hail also struck every plant of the field and shattered every tree of the field. Only in the land of Goshen, where the sons of Israel were, there was no hail." So we see as well that God, in sending these judgments, is able to surgically separate the righteous from the wicked. He is able to target so that there are no accidents in these judgments nobody is swept away on accident in psalm 78:23 we see that in the same action he can bring both blessing and judgment yet he commanded the clouds above and opened the doors of heaven and he rained down manna upon them to eat and gave them food from heaven man did eat the bread of angels he sent them food in abundance Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I will rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day, that I may test them whether or not they will walk in my instruction. Well, guess what? They fail the test, and God uses the same means to bring judgment. When he rained down meat upon them like the dust, even winged fowl like the sand of the seas, then he let them fall in the midst of their camp, round about their dwellings, so they ate and were filled, and their desire he gave to them. He's letting every man do what he would judge right in his own eyes when they said, we're sick of this manna, we're sick of this provision of God, God give us something different that we judge better. God, in in an act of what seems like irony, sends them just a torrential downpour of birds, filling their camp, and just like the manna, rotting, at a given point, they eat so much that they don't want to eat anymore. They engorge themselves on their desires. But not only that, before they had satisfied their desire, while their food was in their mouths, the anger of God rose against them and killed some of their stoutest ones and subdued the choicest men of Israel. Psalm eleven six reminds us, upon the wicked he will rain snares. Fire and brimstone and burning wind will be the portion of their cup, for the Lord is righteous and he loves righteousness. The upright will behold his face. In Ezekiel 38, which you just looked at a couple of weeks ago in the Sunday school, says, With pestilence and with blood I will enter into judgment with him, and that is Gog and I will rain on him and on his troops and on the many peoples who are with him a torrential rain with hailstones, fire, and brimstone. I will magnify myself, sanctify myself, and make myself known in the sight of many nations, and they will know that I am the Lord. So this is not an unusual kind of judgment for the Lord. It's not an unusual act for him to send down from heaven. Um, In fact, in in this Psalm 78, must be verse 26, the one I skipped, he says that he changed the directions of the wind to naturally bring these birds toward that place. He didn't artificially craft birds in the sky and dump them on Israel. He used the earth that he created, that he is sovereign over, to direct these birds toward the place that he wanted them to go. The irony of this is. Israel was not going in the place that he wanted them to go. As he was directing them, they were refusing. But the rest of creation is obeying God. They are acting against him. Here in Sodom, we have men acting against God, acting against his will. And just like he did with the sons of Israel, just like he did with Noah when he used the earth to destroy them, he's about to use the earth to destroy them. And so the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah brimstone and fire from the Lord out of heaven. Now we have a curiosity here that the Lord is mentioned twice. And oddly enough, it seems like two different persons. Now some, like John Calvin, have just rationalized this as emphatic. He's mentioning himself twice to emphasize the source is the Lord. Now, John Calvin is a Trinitarian. He does understand the Trinity, but he doesn't see it in this passage. However, this has been a passage of debate among Jewish rabbis for millennia because they simply cannot get around the fact that there are two persons here. There are two beings, and they, knowing Hebrew, understand this. They don't get around it by saying it's simply emphasis. Because naming the Lord and then giving the action, especially putting it before the verb, as it is here, already gives it enough emphasis. But they recognize that there are two beings here. They come up with explanations such as, well, one is the angel Gabriel being called the Lord because the Lord had sent him. This is not a very good explanation. We cannot find another place in scripture where this occurs. Some might say that it is the angelic host that God is consulting with. Well, this seems to be a handy explanation, but that's nowhere in the text. The simple fact of the matter is we have the Lord, an agent on earth, bringing down brimstone and fire from the source, the Lord God the Father in heaven. God the Son bringing the judgment, God the Father providing the judgment. This is a text in which we've got two of the three persons of the Godhead. And they match the functions of these two members of the Godhead. In John 5.22, we read concerning Jesus, "...for not even the Father judges anyone, but he has given all judgment to the Son, so that all will honor the Son even as they honor the Father." He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Jesus is the one bringing down the judgment on Sodom. And in the last days, Jesus is the one who brings wrath on the world to cleave the grip of Satan from this world, from the creation of God. Jesus is the judge who stands judge over the whole world. He stands judge over believers, and he stands judge over unbelievers. For believers, their judgment is for rewards. For unbelievers, their judgment is for punishment. In 2 Corinthians 5.10, Paul speaking to believers says, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. This is the bema seat that we will be present at immediately after the rapture. Before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may be recompensed, rewarded, given, for his deeds in the body, according to what he has done, whether good or bad. If bad, they will suffer loss. If good, they will suffer, or they will receive reward. 1 Corinthians 3 tells us about this. There's not going to be penal judgments at the Bema Seat of Christ. No one will be punished and whipped and castigated or thrown into outer darkness. But some will suffer a loss of reward, those potential rewards that they could have earned in the body of Christ were they in fellowship, and producing fruit or bearing fruit. In Matthew 25 verse 31, Jesus himself speaks of the judgment that he will bring on the earth when he returns. You see, there will be a few different groups that need judgment and that need a different judgment than just one big conglomerate judgment. We saw that believers are judged separately. In fact, they're judged at least seven years before any other judgments take place. Here at the end of the tribulation period, when Christ returns, he's got two different groups of mortal beings to judge. He has the Gentiles and he has the Jews, which he judges separately on the earth. And then he will have the resurrected Israel to judge as well. But in Matthew twenty-five thirty-one, he's dealing with the nations, the Gentiles, the Gentiles who are alive on the earth when he returns, when he brings the judgment that he is patterning in Sodom on the whole world. It says, when the son of man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate them from one another. As the sheep separates the sheep, As the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats, he will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. The king will say to those on his right, Come, you are blessed of my father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire, which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. These will go away into eternal punishment but the righteous into eternal life. When he judges the people of Israel who survived the tribulation period, not all of them at this time will be believers in the true Messiah, but he will surgically separate those who are and those who are not. It says, As I live, declares the Lord God, surely with a mighty hand and with an outstretched arm and with wrath Poured out. that is the tribulation period, the time of Jacob's trouble, the wrath of the Lamb. With wrath poured out, I shall be king over you. I will bring you out from the peoples and gather you from the lands where you are scattered with a mighty hand and with an outstretched arm. And with wrath poured out, I will bring you into the wilderness of the peoples. And there I will enter into judgment with you face to face. As I entered into judgment with your fathers in the wilderness of the land of Egypt, So I will enter into judgment with you, declares the Lord. I will make you pass under the rod, and I will bring you into the bond of the covenant, and I will purge from you the rebels and those who transgress against me. I will bring them out of the land where they sojourn, but they will not enter the land of Israel. Thus you will know that I am the Lord. In fact, in Ezekiel chapter 13, he speaks of this same judgment as them going through a furnace, of them being purified like gold, of the dross being burned away, and those who are righteous remaining as purified gold. <laughs> the judgment that he brings on Sodom, we don't see directly mirrored anywhere else in his, uh, biblical history and judgments of cities. We see a future promise that certain cities will be so completely destroyed that they will never be inhabited again, such as Damascus and Babylon, such as Tyre and Sidon, although in the millennial kingdom, we'll see that they will have a nation while Babylon will not. It will be so utterly destroyed. In fact, even Sodom and Gomorrah may have a nation, though Lot may be the only one in it. What we see in the pattern of Sodom's destruction is that this destruction is complete; it is total, and there is nothing remaining. In Genesis nineteen twenty five, Moses records that he overthrew those cities and all the valley, and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. Now, this term for overthrew or overthrowing yahafak in the Hebrew means to change completely or to turn upside down, to flip over. It's used a lot in Leviticus when something changes from one thing to another, such as a a garment that gets a mark of leprosy, and it changes from a clean garment to a filthy garment. It's also used for when something like water turns to blood. It changes completely what it was, and now it is something different. What changes here in the cities is once they were, they existed, and now they do not. They were turned upside down. In fact, this uses a similar uh, phrase in the Greek uh, as we see for the flood, where the flood uses the Greek term cataclysmos, or a cataclysm, every time that it is spoken of. This overthrow of Sodom and Gomorrah uses catastrophe or a catastrophe every time it is spoken of, a similar total judgment as the flood. Now, it says that he overthrew or turned upside down those cities and all the valley or the circle of the Jordan. Now, the Jordan Valley is a very, very unique geographical place on the earth. We know that God prepared this judgment ahead of time, knowing what would occur here and even set these foundations of the earth before the flood, and knowing that the flood would come, he set the judgment and prepared it for Sodom as well. And the whole earth he has designed and waiting for the final judgment from the wrath of the Lamb as well. But the Dead Sea and the whole Jordan Valley, interestingly enough, is set along one of the biggest uh, volcanic rifts in the entire world, the African Rift Valley. This is the same fault line that Kilimanjaro is on, and historically it's been very active. In fact, if you go up to the north of the Dead Sea, around the Sea of Galilee, the Golan Heights is a volcanic mountain range. In fact, when you go up and you're traveling through those hills, you see these big volcanic craters that are now filled with vegetation, but at one time were active, and many of the structures up in Uh, The Sea of Galilee are built out of basalt rather than sandstone or limestone or anything else that they have available in Israel because it is volcanic. But despite the fact that it is on this rift valley, there is no evidence anywhere in the lower Jordan Valley of volcanic activity. There are no lava flows that we can find. There is no evidence of any such thing. But what we do have not tectonics, but a lot of gases underneath this region. After the flood, as the waters began to recede, we see that this valley closed off and became one of the deepest valleys because it was closed off and it became very hot and evaporated, but it was constantly still fed by the mountain ranges in the north and the Sea of Galilee and the Jordan River. Now, in Genesis 6.13, we see how God brought this judgment on the earth in Noah's day. God said to Noah, the end of all flesh has come before me. The earth is filled with violence because of them. And behold, I'm about to destroy them with the earth, using the earth itself that they had corrupted, using the land that they had destroyed to destroy them. It says in the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the seventh day of the month, On the same day, all the fountains of the great deep burst open. The floodgates of the sky were opened, and rain fell on the earth for 40 days and 40 nights. One explanation for the destruction at Babylon, though not volcanic, would be an earthquake. On this rift valley, with the gases that are beneath it, we see in Genesis 14, now the valley of Sidim, which is the Dead Sea, was full of tar pits, and the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, and they fell into them, and those who survived fled to the hill country. These tar pits have explosive gases in them. In fact, if you move just a bit north of Israel to Azerbaijan, they are well known for what are called mud volcanoes. These are not hot, these are not volcanic, but they are pits that will often explode because of the gases in them. Now, naturally, if you have God supernaturally raining down fire from heaven, coinciding with an earthquake to set all these gases free, what you get is an explosion. And in fact, we see no evidence of volcanic activity in the Jordan Valley, but what we do see is is similar traces to what we find in places like Japan after an atomic bomb has gone off. We see sand turned into glass. We see items that have flown away from a central explosive point embedded into the walls of the valley. We see entire cities overthrown as if they have simply exploded. Some say that this may have been a meteor that God threw down. Others think it might be an earthquake either, instance is perfectly plausible. What we do know is it created yet another very unique geographical uh, element to the Earth's surface. Now, while there may have been a lake in this area around this region, which may explain why there were so many cities in this lower valley, the lake evidently was not like it is today. The Jordan River used to flow freely from the Sea of Galilee down the valley through whatever lake was in the southern valley and then continued down all the way to the Gulf of uh, Aqaba or Elat in Israel. This river south of the Dead Sea has long since dried up. It can no longer get water because the Dead Sea has been carved so deep that the water simply does not go any further. It all pools up and evaporates before it can overflow and continue to feed that river that is now no river at all. And so what we have is a hole dug out of the earth in what is already the deepest valley on earth. In fact, while the southern portion of the sea of, or the Dead Sea, which may be the original sea, is only four to sixteen feet on average. The average depth of the northern part of the Dead Sea is 1,200 feet deep. This is one giant hole in which God used to overturn the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. It wouldn't have filled with water immediately. It would have simply been a hole opened up in the ground that then exploded. Naturally, this is such a great devastation that all the cities in the valley would be completely destroyed. We understand why they weren't supposed to stay anywhere in that valley. You also might notice that there's an odd little peninsula down at the bottom of that lake. This may have been the place of Zoar that God spared supernaturally, so that Lot could find safety in it because he had requested and God had granted in Deuteronomy twenty nine twenty two says, Now the generation to come, your sons who rise up after you, and the foreigner who comes from a distant land, when they see the plagues of the land and the diseases with, with which the Lord has afflicted it, they will say, All its land is brimstone and salt, a burning waste, unsown and unproductive, and no grass grows in it, like the overthrow of Sodom and Gomorrah, Adma and Zeboim, which the Lord overthrew in his anger and in his wrath. God told this second generation of Israel coming out of Egypt, as they were about to enter into Israel, that they would go through a certain series of judgments, these judgments that God patterned with Sodom to show them what justice and righteousness required, and then when they would go in, that eventually they would go through cycles of judgment because of their disobedience to God's commands of how to live in the land, and that their land would even be seen as so completely destroyed that it would parallel Sodom, Gomorrah, Adman, Zeboim, the cities of the valley that were destroyed. They would be brimstone and salt, a burning waste, unsown and unproductive with no grass growing in it. You could almost pluck this verse out and paste it in Mark Twain's Innocence Abroad. When he went to visit Israel before the rebirth of that nation, this is the kind of description he came back with, saying it is a horrid place, a disgusting swampland, with mosquitoes where nothing grows, neither human nor plant. And today, even the desert is blooming. Rocks to curl flowers because the Lord has blessed it and the Lord has promised to return his people to this land. And it is the Lord that gives uh, the land its productivity, just as it is the Lord who gives people their productivity. Remember in Genesis 14:1 through 3, when the kings of the east came to attack this land, we had these five cities. They made war with Bera, the king of Sodom, with Bersha, the king of Gomorrah, with Shinab the king of Adma, and Shemeber, the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela—that that is Zoar. We never learned his name, but the city used to be called Bela, and now it's called Zoar because of Lot's request to go there, twice stating it is small, and the word for small in Hebrew is Mezoar. And these came as allies to the valley of Siddim that is the salt sea. Now if Bila was renamed to be Zoar in this fashion, being Bila, that is Zoar, then the valley of Sidim is renamed in the same way, that is the salt sea. What was a valley is now a salt sea. And so he overthrew these cities, he overthrew the valley, he completely turned them upside down He destroyed also all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground as well. In the flood judgment, the water prevailed more and more upon the earth so that all the high mountains everywhere under the heavens were covered. The water prevailed 15 cubits higher and the mountains were covered. All flesh that moved on the earth perished, birds and cattle and beasts and every swarming thing that swarms upon the earth and all mankind of all that was on the dry land all in whose nostrils was the breath of the spirit of life, died. Thus he blotted out every living thing that was upon the face of the land, from man to animals to creeping things and to birds of the sky, and they were blotted out from the earth, and only Noah was left together with those that were with him on the ark. Here we have a similar judgment, a complete destruction of all living things. All of the inhabitants of these cities were destroyed, and all the vegetation that they grew in this valley that, remember, Lot had looked down on and seen that it was like the garden of God as you go down to Zoar. It looked to him as he would imagine the garden of Eden had looked. And this is what God destroyed in the judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah. And if you go there today, it is a wasteland. It is, in fact, in all of that northern part of Israel, north of the Negev, the only part that is simply unpleasant to be at. It is dry, despite the fact of being a gigantic body of water. The water gives no relief. It brings no coolness to the air. It is thousands of feet below sea level, and you can't drink the water. It burns to go in the water. Now, someday if you go, try floating in it, but not if you have a sunburn, Uh, it hurts. It is just not a pleasant place to be. It is beautiful. I'll give you that, but it is not pleasant. 2 Peter 3.10 looks forward again to a similar form of judgment. Remember, God promised that he would never again bring a flood on the earth to destroy it. He would never use water to completely inundate the world, but that instead he will bring fire to inundate the world. He patterns that judgment in Sodom. He shows us how he's going to do it in the end. The day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. The heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat. But according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. If we jump forward into Revelation, we see that God will bring these kinds of judgments on the earth uh, in the last days. Revelation 8, 6 through 7, the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared themselves to sound and the first sounded and there came hail and fire mixed with blood and they were thrown to the earth and a third of the earth was burned up and a third of the trees were burned up and all the green grass was burned up. Now, this is the trumpet judgments. This is at the midpoint of the tribulation. He's not yet bringing a total destruction. But when we get to the bowl judgments, we see these destructions made total. In Revelation 9, 1 through 2, we begin to see some very similar parallel judgments on the earth as we see in Sodom. And it is that God understood the judgment. God knew ahead of time the judgment he would bring on the earth in the last days. And he brought the same kind of judgment on Sodom. Revelation 9, 1 through 2, we see angelic involvement in bringing that judgment. In verse 3, we see that the prayers of the saints are given concerning divine justice. Abraham had prayed to God that God uphold his own character in judging righteously, and that means saving the righteous while bringing actual judgment on the wicked. Here we see the prayers of the saints calling for justice and God is going to bring justice and he will bring it swiftly, but he will also bring it surgically. In verses four through five, we see fire, thunder, lightning, and earthquakes thrown on the earth. The first trumpet judgment, we get all vegetation burned uh, with a third of the trees and the brush. The second trumpet, we see a burning mountain falls from the sky and kills all the sea life. This may have been similar to what happened in Sodom and Gomorrah, if those who believe that a meteor, God sent a meteor to bring this destruction. But regardless, we have everything in that sea dead. This is what we have in the Dead Sea. Nothing lives. Imagine this on every single Uh, body of water across the entire earth. It brings absolutely no relief. In the third trumpet, a burning star or uh, similar to a torch falls from the sky and turns all the water bitter, undrinkable. You don't want to drink the water from the Dead Sea either. This is the kind of bitterness and burning that God is going to bring on the earth in these trumpet judgments. Fourth and fifth judgments bring darkness, smoke, and the opening up of a pit. And the sixth trumpet, fire-breathing horses with brimstone breastplates. Now, that's not to say that we reinterpret what happened in Sodom and Gomorrah based on Revelation, but we see God's pattern in bringing judgment. We see that he has presented ahead of time a pattern so that when we look into Revelation and we see how he is going to judge, we understand the literalness of what he will do. We understand that these are real judgments, real fire, real burning, real thunder, lightning, earthquakes, just like he has done in the past. In Revelation 16, 2, moving forward into the bowl judgments, it says the second angel poured out his bowl into the sea and it became like that of a dead man, and every living thing in the sea died. Now remember, when God brought the judgment of the flood in the days of Noah, everything died except the sea life and the vegetation. Noah didn't bring any vegetation other than what they would eat on the um, boat. He also did not bring any sea life. God preserved them through this judgment. What Noah brought on the boat was those things that lived with him on land and the birds of the sky, the things that would not survive in the water. But some things survive water, nothing survives fire. God is bringing fire, and he is bringing a total destruction. And he makes a point in Revelation 16, towards the end of these judgments, the bold judgments, that he also this time killed everything in the sea. In fact, the first bowl, we see that men are struck with sores all over their flesh. In the second one, the sea turns to blood and all the sea life dies. In the third bowl, all the fresh water also turns to blood. Fourth bowl, the sun scorches men with fire. In the fifth bowl, darkness is over the kingdom of the false Messiah. We're about to see the dark smoke that rises up from the valley in the middle of the day, in the sixth bowl, and this one's interesting, the rivers dry up and the kings of the east march. If you remember when we did Genesis 14, this march of the kings from the east into the land of Israel paralleled that future judgment of these 10 kings marching from the same lands towards Israel. And he dries up the rivers in order to bring them there the seventh bowl, the last judgment that finally tears this kingdom of this world away from the false messiah and delivers it over to the true messiah, we see lightning, thunder, earthquakes, and hail, and the result of that is that cities are overturned. Islands completely disappear. Mountains sink back into the land, and they disappear completely. The judgments of Sodom, though a total destruction in that day of those cities. Mirrors, but in a small microcosm, what God is going to do on the entire earth when he brings judgment. Now we do get a note in here about what happened to Lot's wife. In fact, for all all the talk about her, she only gets really one verse here. When she could have been mentioned earlier, She is absent from the text. Um, It's here that she's mentioned, and she's not named either. In that way, she's kind of like Noah's wife. We don't know her name. Um, But his wife, from behind him, looked back, and she became a pillar of salt. Now, we see, first of all, that she was lagging behind him. She didn't look behind him, but she was positionally behind him in the judgment. Now, God is not able to do anything until Lot enters Sodom. If I were her, I'd be running ahead of Lot. I wouldn't want to be there after him. I would want to get there before him because God is preserving the land so long as Lot is not in Zoar. But she is lagging behind. She, like Lot, does not understand the urgency of the moment, and she dilly-dallied just like he did when he decided to argue with the angels about where he would go to. Remember, the angels had warned them. uh, When they brought them outside, one said, escape for your life. This is a life or death situation. Do not look behind you and do not stay anywhere in the valley. Escape to the mountains or you will be swept away. The options here are be rescued by obeying the Lord or be swept away by disobeying the Lord. Clear cut. And yet she looks back. She does exactly what the angels told her not to do, and she is swept away in the judgment. Now, there's a lot of wasted pages in commentaries trying to figure out what she was thinking, why she was doing this. The text does not tell us. The closest we come is perhaps in Luke 17, when the Lord himself is speaking about this judgment and again, paralleling it to the judgment that is to come. It says, just as it happened in the days of Noah, so it will be also in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating, they were drinking, they were marrying, they were being given in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. And it was the same as happened in the days of Lot. They were eating, they were drinking, they were buying, they were selling, they were planting, they were building. Now, interestingly, we see what was happening in the days of Noah. We see what was happening in the days of Lot in Sodom. And it says this is what it's going to be like in the future days as well. We understand better what it was like in Noah's day because we get so much detail here about what exactly was going on in Lot's day but also what will happen in the future. But continuing here, on the day that Lot went out of Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. It will be just the same on the day that the Son of Man is revealed. And on that day, the one who is on the housetop and whose goods are in the house must not go down to take them out. And likewise, the one who is in the field must not turn back. Now, remember last week when we talked about these two different warnings that Israel had been given in the Olivet Discourse. One was concerning the temple in their own day. When they saw it surrounded by armies, they were to flee. They were to get out immediately and not to waste a moment. Also, he told them of the future coming of the false Messiah when they see the false Messiah enter into the rebuilt temple and declare that he is the true Messiah, they are to get out of town without wasting a moment, not even to grab a coat, not even to uh, to go back into their house to simply flee. Here they are told as well that on the day that the Lord is revealed, uh, anyone who is left there will be judged to those who are not uh, those who do not possess the righteousness of Christ will be judged with death. That is the coming of the final day of grace. The day that the Lord is revealed in judgment, grace is over. It is the end of God's extending salvation, and he comes in judgment. But concerning that last day, that is when he says, remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to keep his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life will preserve it. Now those who were in the city during the surrounding by armies were in the city because they were trying to continue to be part of the religious system, the Mosaic law, which had been completed and fulfilled in Christ. Because they did not understand who Christ was completely, and that the law had been finished, they were remaining in the city that was destined for judgment and if they did not recognize who the false messiah is if they did not recognize the judgment that would come on the city because they had rejected Christ but the one who is coming in his own name they will receive john 5:43 because of that god will bring another judgment on israel in revelation 11:8 God says that Jerusalem is mystically Sodom and Egypt, these two cities that God has brought such a judgment on. He is going to bring that judgment on. Uh, Revelation 11.8 is in the context of the midpoint of the tribulation when the false Messiah enters into the temple and declares himself to be the Messiah. Now, at these times, if they do not recognize who God is, they do not recognize who is their Savior and the day that they are living in. If they are seeking to do things themselves, like keeping their lives, they will lose their life rather than giving their life to the Lord and him preserving it. I think Victor Hamilton had the best, if not the only good, statements on this verse uh, in his commentary on Genesis. He says, Sodom is overturned and Lot's wife is metamorphosed. Her action in looking back was in direct defiance of the order given in verse 17. We are not told why she looked back. The text nowhere suggests that her affection for the city had a stronghold on her, and that she now entertains a wistful thought towards Sodom. I mean, one commentary, even wrote a little short story about the mind of, of uh, Lot's wife. We know nothing about her. She may have been from Sodom. We don't know. She may have been from Egypt. We don't know she may have been from Ur of the Chaldees. We know nothing about her. We know that she went silently and quietly along with Lot. We saw only that she was dallying behind him, but so was Lot, dallying behind where he should have been. We don't know that she looked back in longing, wishing that she remained in the city. It could have been simply her curiosity at what was happening behind her. Regardless, she was told, do not look. This isn't the only place in scripture that when judgment is brought, darkness also covers the scene. Now, Abraham is going to look out over the cliffside, but it is going to be covered in black smoke. He himself will not be able to look on the specifics of the judgment. But Lot and Lot's wife are in the midst of the judgment and being preserved from it. God says, do not look at this judgment. When Christ is crucified on the cross. God brings pitch black over the scene so that no one can look at the sufferings of Christ. The moment where he is bearing the judgment for the whole world, where he is bearing the sins of the whole world. God says this is not something that man should look on. But here Lot's wife decides she is going to look at the thing that God told her not to look at, judgment being brought down on these cities. Perhaps she looked back simply because of the noise and the bright horizon of the city behind her, but if that is the case, why does she lose her life? She lost her life for only one reason, because she overtly ignored the directives of verse 17, which admittedly was directed just to Lot, But guess what else was directed just to one individual with the responsibility of his wife obeying as well? The Lord God commanded the man saying, from any tree of the garden, you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. From the day that you eat from it, you will surely die. These were all singular commands given to Adam. And the result was he told his wife about this command from the Lord, and she disobeyed it. Similarly, actually this is Genesis 19, 17, not 7, 23. The angels say, escape, singular, speaking to Lot, for your life. Do not look behind you. Do not stay anywhere in the valley. Escape to the mountains or you will be swept away. But this command transfers to his wife as well. And she disobeys it. And so in spite of the messengers Al-Tabit which means do not look back. What Lot's wife did, tabet, she looked behind. She did exactly the verb that they said do not do. And so before divine judgment, there is only the possibility of being smitten or escaping. There is no third alternative. And if she is disobedient in this area, she falls into the category of smitten. She is not escaping. The result was that she became a pillar of salt. Now, this is one of the most curious passages, I think, in at least all of Genesis, if not all of the Old Testament and the New Testament. Uh, how did she become salt? Notice we tend to add in here a few words. We tend to add in our minds, God turned her into a pillar of salt. The text doesn't say that. The result of her looking back, the natural consequences of what she did, was that God swept her away in the same judgment that he was bringing on the cities. Yes, she turned into a pillar of salt. This may not have been by divine fiat of uh, transforming all of her molecules into salt molecules. And in order for God's word to be true, that's not necessary. However, it is not beyond the power of God to do that. But the verse does not say that God turned her into a pillar of salt. This appears as a natural consequence of disobeying God's direct command. And also, it says that she became a pillar of salt. Does not say that in one moment she was not salt and the next moment she was salt. But through process, whatever that process may have been, the result was she turned into salt. This happens to just about anything in the Dead Sea. And in that entire region, in fact, there is an abundance of salt. And in the southern region near Zoar, there is a mountain of salt that is about seven miles long. So much salt in that area that in such an explosion as may have occurred in Sodom, these or this salt would have been flying through the air, burning. And if you get swept up in that cloud, you turn into salt. This is a dress that they dipped in the Dead Sea and pulled it up a few days later, maybe a few weeks later, and it had completely turned to salt. Now, the dress is still in there somewhere, but when you're looking at this, this is a dress made of salt. And when you're looking at Lot's wife, perhaps she was still in there. But all that could be seen was a pillar of salt because she was swept away in the judgment. She was not in the pit, in the explosion, but the judgment caught up to her because she was disobedient to the direct commands of God of how to be saved. Finally, we end then with the solemn scene, the summary of what occurred here. And what begins is the surveillance of Abraham. Again, interestingly, this comes immediately after Lot's wife was killed for looking. We see God's man, Abraham, not killed for looking. But remember what God had told Abraham, or what God had discussed with the angels before revealing this to Abraham. The Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? Since Abraham will surely become a great and mighty nation, and in him all the nations of the earth will be blessed. It was a question in God's mind, one he knew the answer to, but one he did state, whether or not he would hide this from Abraham. The result is that he chooses not to hide this from Abraham. And while he will still conceal the specifics of the judgment from Abraham, he lets Abraham look at the judgment of Sodom because he is supposed to tell his children about it. He is supposed to tell his children the results of disobeying God as a nation says, I have chosen him so that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring upon Abraham what he has spoken about him. And the Lord said, the outcry of Sodom and Gomorrah is indeed great and their sin is exceedingly grave. I will go down now and see if they have done entirely according to the outcry which has come to me and if not, I will know. Well, when God went down to observe What was going on in Sodom? Chapter 19, verse 13, we see the wickedness of these people. We see them going after these angels, and when they're denied the angels, going after Lot himself. We even see Lot in the city so corrupted by them, offering his virgin daughters to them in exchange for leaving the angels alone. The city is wicked and corrupt. God's judgment is perfect, God's judgment is swift, but he has done this in the sight of Abraham. So Abraham looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the valley, and this is what he saw. The smoke of the land ascended like the smoke of a furnace. He was not able to see the land of the valley that he looked towards. He looked towards it. He did not look at it because he could not see it. It was covered in smoke. Just like the children of Israel at Mount Sinai, when the mountain was covered with smoke as the smoke of a furnace. Now Mount Sinai was all in smoke because the Lord descended upon it in fire. And its smoke descended like the smoke of a furnace, and the whole mountain quaked violently. Here we have the birth of the nation of Israel with God's descending on the mountains in smoke and burning and a violent earthquake. For all other nations, the end of them will be the presence of God in judgment and the earthquakes that will overturn their cities in the end times. For Israel, this is their beginning. God is sovereign over them, he is master over them. And they are to know their responsibility before him, because in them, in Abraham, God will bless all the nations of the world. Now Moses attaches a little summary here of the events that occurred, and then in the next section of verses, he is going to attach an epilogue explaining what happened to Lot after the destruction of Sodom. But his conclusion here is, thus it came about, when God destroyed the cities of the valley, that God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow, when the overthrow, when he overthrew the cities in which Lot lived. Now, it doesn't say that God remembered Lot in rescuing Lot, but that God remembered Abraham. Remember in the judgment of the flood that through Noah's faithfulness to God's command, Noah was preserved alive. God told him the one way of salvation and he listened. And he preserved not only himself, but his family with him and the animals of the earth. God remembered the faithful one. Here we have God again remembering the faithful one. And on behalf of this faithful remnant, God preserved the unfaithful one, but the one who still belonged to him. Lot could have been swept up in this destruction. It would not have changed anything about his eternal destiny, but he would have lost his life. He would have lost uh, his ability to serve the Lord in this world, but guess what? He already wasn't serving the Lord in this world. God preserved him as a second chance. That second chance isn't going to go much better but we'll look at that next week. But also notice that this doesn't end with a statement about Abraham seeing Lot flee on the other side of the Dead Sea. Abraham, looking down at this judgment without any direct revelation from God about what just happened, knows only one thing, that God did not find 50 righteous in these cities. He did not find 45, He did not find 40, 30, or 20, or even 10 righteous in these cities. We do not even know if Abraham knew that Lot had been spared. Often when we look at the judgments of God, we don't see how carefully he is acting to save those who he has planned to save. Sometimes we just see the burning smoke. But we trust in God because God is trustworthy and his character does not change and He has promised not to judge the wicked the same way he judges the righteous. So our conclusion this morning, God presents a pattern of judgment with the destruction of Sodom. God may judge nations individually while preserving the rest of the world for final judgment. And the totality of destruction mirrors God's final judgment over the whole world when it comes under the power of the false Messiah. Let's pray. Dear Father, we thank you that you are a God of righteousness and that you are a God of justice. And we thank you that as we look around the world and we see it becoming like the days of Noah and the days of Lot, that you have a plan not only for justice to bring down judgment on the world, but for rescue as well. We see that you have planned to rescue those who belong to you, both before the judgment begins and even through the judgment. So we do praise you in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.